welcome to another TEDxUWA Thursday episode. I am Talia Strupp, I am a UWA alumni, former TEDxUWA committee member and a current TEDxUWA board member. At TEDxUWA, we host TED Light Talks, focusing on the impressive work and inspiring stories of UWA students, staff and alumni. We have teamed up with the Young Alumni Network to continue the conversation sparked by our UWA alumni speakers through this podcast series. Every fortnight, a TEDx UWA member will bring on a UWA graduate who has previously spoken at a TEDx UWA event to discuss their experience as a speaker and what they have been up to since their talk. This episode, I'm joined by the inspiring Phoebe Ho. Phoebe is a passionate mental health advocate driven by her lived experience of anorexia and bulimia. Phoebe is currently undertaking her master's in clinical psychology and transitioning towards being a clinical psychologist. She is also an Australian Mental Health Leaders Fellow with the National Mental Health Commission. Phoebe's dedication to improving mental health outcomes saw her as a finalist in the 2019 WA Young Achiever Awards, where she hopes to continue influencing positive changes in the Australian community. Thanks for joining us today, Phoebe. It's um, great to have you. So to start off, for those who may not have listened to your TED talk or TEDxUWA talk, could you please give us a um, quick summary? Yeah, so I guess my TED talk that I did in 2018 was um, mainly about my own lived experience of um, two kinds of eating disorders I've had, um, anorexia and bulimia, um, which I had for about uh, eight to nine years of my life. And my TED talk was really about how um, other individuals can use um, their own lived experiences of, of mental health or mental health challenges they've faced to, I guess, reduce stigma and actually use that experience to inspire others that um, you know, recovery is possible um, to stay hopeful and to really persevere. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty big topic and, you know, very important and it affects a lot of people. But what was the TEDxUWA experience like for you? So the, pre- the preparation for the talk and on the day and things like that? The TEDx experience at UWA for me was um, a mix of excitement and a lot of nerves, I think. Um, so I think in terms of excitement, I mean, you know, I, for myself, I've, always, I've never been one to public speak. Um, and actually in high school and even in primary school, I had a bit, had a bit of a stutter. Um, I was very, very nervous to, to speak in public. But I think over the years, I've, I've learned to come out of my shell a bit more. And I think this TEDx talk experience actually gave me the confidence that I needed to, to build my self-esteem and to really... Yeah, just build my confidence to, to be myself, to share my ideas with others. Um, so I mean, excited. I mean, you know, I was like, oh my gosh, this is, you know, an opportunity for me to share my own experiences on a platform to really, um, I guess, be, be able to, to let others know that, that recovery is possible. The actual process itself was, I guess, nerve wracking because we would have sort of weekly um, speaker um, coaching or, or training sessions um, individually as well as in a group. So um, with the individual one, um, individual speaker coaching sessions, I remember my first ever script I did and my speaker coach, Lisa, was saying, oh, you, you need to increase your intonation or do this body language or, or that body language. I was like, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm really, really subject to, to I guess, um, 
scrutiny here, but it was all very, very helpful. And I think that, you know, a lot of time we're used to, to speaking, but not storytelling. And storytelling was such a different experience. And I think that my individual speaker coach really, really helped me a lot through that. Um, in terms of the flow, how to structure it, you know, how to storytell in terms of grab the audience in and you have to have a hook you have to take them through this emotional experience in this journey um so i think my experiences with my individual coach was extremely useful and um, and even with our i think every couple of weeks we would have this big group sort of meeting and i remember there was like four people in the panel and everyone else was in the room it was like 12 people in the room and just like watching you practice and the amount of times I stuffed up and went and went oh my gosh hold up let me pause let me start again that was yeah I, I was very very nervous um and I could feel everyone's eyes on me but I think that was you know it was nerve-wracking but I think it was all part of the process of, of learning to not be afraid to put myself out there and I think it really really did add to that experience of building my confidence up um as a speaker um, and even on the day of the actual TEDx talk itself, I remember Justin was my other speaker coach and I <laughs> rehearsed it with him so many, so many times. Um, and yeah, on the actual day itself, I actually stuffed up and I remember him coming up to me after saying, and even before saying, it's okay if you stuff up because others don't know what you were meant to say. So long you go out there, have your fun, you know, share your story. That's all that matters. Yeah. And I think definitely... That's right. No one knows what you're going to say on the day, you know, and I think your story, you told it so well and it was so engaging. So, yeah, I definitely think it was a great talk to, to sort of listen to. So what has changed in your life since your TEDxUWA talk? Oh, um, <laughs> so many, so many different things. I feel like my TEDx talk was actually one of the first sort of big conferences or forums where I actually shared my story because before that I, I've been trained up as a lived experience speaker. I usually um, speak to more local type community groups. I think I did one or two at a national level, but mainly quite small local groups um, at schools and universities. But after that first TEDx talk and after I think I, I, I'd shared it on a couple of platforms, you know, people actually started reaching out to me and sort of saying, it's amazing that you shared your story. You know, we'd love yeah. for you to come to our school, um, to this next conference, um, to this next forum. Um, and sort of since my TEDx talk, I've actually had a lot of different messages and invitations to speak um, but at both a local and a national level. And it's been um, a really, really great and rewarding experience. And um, a lot of these different conferences and, and platforms that I've been able to speak at, what I find rewarding about them is because I feel that I get to be part of that process to, to help reduce the stigma surrounding yeah. mental health. Um, and, you know, I'm at a really interesting spot in my life right now because um, I, I've been a lived experience advocate and, and mm. a speaker for probably the last four or five years. Um, and now I'm actually studying my master's in clinical psychology. So I'm working and studying as a provisional clinical psychologist yeah. and so I'm seeing clients, but at the same time, I've, so I've got this professional hat on, but I've also got this side to me where I've, I'm a lived experience advocate. And so I think now a lot of my lived experience speaking talks, I'm trying to merge these sort of identities together, yeah. um, which has been a really, really interesting space to be in. And, you know, I 
since that TEDx talk, you know, it's really solidified for me the importance of needing to, to speak up um, to be able to reduce that stigma. It's not something that I would ever want to stop doing despite, um, I guess, going into a more professional path right now becoming a clinical psychologist um, because it's just a part of me. And I feel that if I don't share my story, if I don't continue being a lived experience speaker and advocate um, on different platforms, such as, you know, through the TEDx conference that I'm contributing to perpetuating that stigma surrounding mental health. Mm. Um, and so I guess since, so yeah, since that conference, it's really given me um, the confidence to, to speak up and cemented for me why it's so important to continue speaking up um, to, I guess, be a role model even um, for others wanting to speak up to try to reduce that stigma. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely important, like you say, and I think anyone who hasn't already should go and listen to your TEDxUWA talk and sort of get a bit of a feel for it because it is such an important topic. And so with sort of your life at university, you, you've been so involved in university life, part of various clubs and committees and the UWA Guild Welfare Officer in 2018. And what was the benefit of this for you getting involved? Well, I, I guess... I actually never, I'm, I'm studying clinical psychology now, but I actually never wanted to study clinical psychology <laughs> at all. Um, I actually wanted to study physiotherapy because I used to um, do a lot of sports at an elite level. Yeah. And I remember back in the day, one of my first experiences with a psychologist was when I was probably 12 or something like that. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, psychologists are for crazy people. Um, and that's obviously not true at all, but I had this idea in my mind mm. uh, it, there's a lot of stigma at the time yeah. um and so when i started university and i guess started to be involved in all these different clubs and uh, activities and i think i was on the welfare department um in my first second and third year at uni and i was actually you know i had the opportunity to be involved in a whole range of really exciting mental health and well-being type projects um, and initiatives and, and reviewing policies and I could really see how my involvement were able to I guess produce some really tangible changes that were sort of rolled out to the UWA student and, and staff community mm. um, and I really really I guess it was really rewarding to see and even as welfare officer some of the most memorable I guess events that I ran were actually the uh, mental health slam poetry night mm -hmm. um, that was actually a really really big hit where we got um, a range of different students and staff to actually share um, their own mental health experience of course in a very safe and purposeful way um, through poetry um, and we had a really really great response from that um, we also ran you know the the men's um, mental health breakfast which um, where we heard again from three different um, men with lived experience of mental health. I think one was a professional rugby player, um, someone from Lifeline and one, the other person was a student. Um, and again, really, really incredible responses. Mm. And I think all these sorts of events collectively, I saw how much impact they had um, on, yeah. on, the, on the student and the wider community in terms of once again, you know, um, reducing mental health stigma and really trying to promote um, you know, help seeking behaviours, positive health and well-being, and that sort of, I guess, made me realise that this is this is where I want to go. You know, this mm. is this is my alley, um, and I guess it's really cemented for me my drive to work um, in the mental health field in terms of research, policy, um, clinical practice, which is why I've, I guess, continued this journey, and I'm studying clinical psychology now. Wow, yeah, that's pretty. That's pretty. A 
you know, a bit of a U-turn, but it's, it's great how you learn to, <laughs> you get to know different things and different experiences. Um, and for those who are looking to get more involved in university life, where do you recommend they start? I think just, I guess whatever piques your interest, you know, I, um, I, in my first year, I sort of really just threw my, threw myself out there. Mm. Um, I didn't really know what I wanted to do or, or join. I remember being at the end of year 12 and talking to some friends who had been at uni for a couple of years. And they just said to me, Phoebe, you get out of uni, whatever you put in. Yeah. And so first year of uni on Oda, I went, wow, there's so many different clubs. Like, I think there's like over 170 or something ridiculous like that. Um, I remember one of the first clubs I joined was, was the Multicultural Students Union. Mm. Um, so I was there my first second, first and second year. And in my third year, I was on their executive um, as the public relations officer. Mm. Um, and I was also on the welfare department, as I mentioned, and a couple of other clubs and communities here and there. I think that these clubs are really great because mm. it gives you a platform to, you know, meet like-minded people who mm. are doing things for the same reasons as you. And I remember also being a part of Teach Them Grow um, mm. and they run sort of rural programs, like mentoring type programs yeah. um, with partner schools, for example, I think um, in rural and, and remote sort of areas across mm. WA where you actually teach students, you know, maths and English and science in a really fun way. And I've actually met some of, the most incredible people um, along the way and we still actually keep in touch we still catch up and so I think you know just just really throw yourself out there um, you don't really know what you like until yeah. you try things until you yeah you throw yourself out there and you can meet some of the most amazing people and a lot of the people I've met on these different trips through these different clubs and and communities um, and organizations is actually then led on to opening a whole bunch of other doors you know I volunteered with this with this community and then they um, knew someone else who actually then got me a job and you know it's sort of it's just yeah so it's I think everyone Perth is so small I think the world is so small and everyone's connected so you know you meet incredible people um along the way who can um yeah that you can chat to um catch up with every now and then um and and, and can help you out because I do think getting involved with committees and clubs I think it does definitely bring a different aspect and brings so much more to your university experience you know um classes yes. are great <laughs> but you get to yes, meet, yes. get involved with so many more people yeah. Yeah. yeah for sure I think you definitely need that outlet sometimes because mm. you know university life is great but um there is so much more to uni than, than just studying, you know, you need really, you really need that work-life balance. Yeah. Um, and yeah, even through these clubs, I've then joined social sporting teams with these mm -hmm. people I've met on clubs. Um, we still keep in contact now and, you know, go for a run every now and then. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's definitely nice. Um, and what would you say sort of, you know, going in a different direction, uh, what would you say mm -hmm. your biggest failure is and what did you learn from it? Hmm. This is a hard one. Failure in terms of, you know, university life or just life in general or... Just, I guess, I mean, failure is such a hard thing, isn't it? You know, but I just... Yeah. One thing that maybe you learned from or if you went back, you might do it differently or... Hmm. I guess, I guess related to my own, my own lived experiences... Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I don't know if I'd call it a failure, I guess failure is, it's, it's difficult. What would you class as a failure? I guess yeah, it's very subjective, exactly, yeah. but, um, 
I guess for me, it was really that sense of shame and, and not speaking up mm. sooner. I guess I, it's sort of, I wouldn't call it a failure, but then it sort of is, but I guess it's sort of what I would do. Something I do differently really differently. is, mm. yeah, yeah. What I would do differently is to, I guess, educate myself on, on, on what mental health is. I guess I, I so I come from, um, a Singaporean or an Asian background and so for, for where I come from mental health is not something that's um, I guess spoken about that much and so that concept was very very difficult for myself to grasp and my, my parents as well and it's taken myself and my parents probably years to, to grasp the concept of mental health mm-hmm. and so yeah, I think for me, it would be actually acquainting myself with, with what mental health was and that it's not, everyone has a mental health, you know, it's not, it's just like, for example, if you were to have a fracture on your leg, you know, you'd see the doctor and that's the same as mental health. If you're feeling stressed or, or down, it's completely okay to, to talk to someone. And so I think one thing I would do differently is to, yeah, make, I guess, read up, I guess, or, or know a bit more about mental health and try to educate my parents and, and those around me about, about my, um, about what mental health is. Yeah. Um, and I guess even starting the process of mental health advocacy a bit earlier, I guess it took me a while before I started to do my lived experience speaking because I was actually really ashamed of, of having a mental health lived experience. And I thought that, I could only talk about my mental health lived experience when I was well, but I think that speaking up about your lived experiences when you aren't so well is, is equally as important because um, everyone experiences mental health very differently and at different stages of a mental health experience, um, you know, you can, I guess, have very, very different experiences. Um, and I guess just speaking up in general really um, helps once again to, to reduce that stigma surrounding mental health. Yeah, and I think it's really important that, you know, we all try to educate ourselves and to remove that stigma because I know, you know, a lot of people are going through it and a lot of people suffer silently. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it does help to be able to talk about it with other people and then have that sort of, you know, camaraderie almost. Um, yeah, that shared conversation and that understanding. Yeah, yeah definitely. So I know you said you were doing your uh, master's now. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what you're doing with that. Oh, so much. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm in my first year of my master's um, of, of clinical psychology at the moment. Mm. I, at the moment, I'm also seeing clients. So I'm a provisional um, clinical psychologist. So it means I you know, have supervision with, um, I guess, more senior experienced clinical psychologists. Um, and it's been really rewarding. I've just started my child and, and family prac uh, at the moment. Okay. Um, so I'm seeing family therapy clients. Mm-hmm. So that's been really, really um, interesting and also really, really difficult because I think that now that I've started my master's in clinical psychology, it's been this really, really steep learning curve. Yeah. And I think in undergrad and even my, my honours, um, you know, you learn all this, all this theory, you do all these different um, units and it's very, very much theory based. But now finally in my master's, I actually get to apply some of that theory yeah. um, and sometimes translating some of that um, theory into practice can be very, very tricky and a lot <laughs> more challenging um, than I've anticipated. So yeah, master's, I think, is it, is it, it's a bit stressful, um, but 
I guess I know that my eventual goal one day is to become a clinical psychologist. Um, And I'd really, really like to, yeah, work in this area of mental health and particularly with people with eating disorders. uh, Because I guess of of my own lived experience and my own background with the experience of of eating disorders. And I think that, you know, I'd actually like to continue further studies as well in, you know, I guess doctoral studies or, or a PhD in this field of of eating disorders as well, um, as well as lived experience, um, because I think that, well, my, my future goal, I guess, is to one day bring together the, the spheres of um, lived experience as, as well as um, clinical practice. Yeah. Um, and I say that because, you know, in, okay, if you think about it, in the general mental health population, you know, there, there is some stigma. I mean, well, in the general population, there is some stigma that exists among individuals. Um, and I think that we've come a long way in the last decade in trying to reduce that stigma. But I do think that the stigma, particularly within the mental health profession, so amongst, you know, clinical psychologists or counsellors or, or doctors, yeah. that stigma is actually even higher than the general population. And so, you know, I think that a lot of studies, particularly in the UK and US, have actually shown that mental health professionals themselves have like go through periods of, of really rough times and they themselves actually experience um, mental health difficulties and challenges as well. But it's just yeah. something that's not spoken about. Um, and I think there's a study in the UK, a very, very big study that showed that up to 87% of mental health practitioners themselves actually have had their own lived experience of mental health, but yeah. it's something, and I think it's a topic that's swept under the carpet. And so I guess what I want to do in the future and what I'm doing now is to really try to advocate for um, lived, the, the concept of lived experience clinicians. So yeah. um, if a clinician or a practitioner has had their own mental health lived experience to really step up and, and talk about it um, because it sets a good role model for, for others out there to, to speak up. And it really helps to reduce that, that mental health stigma once again um and i think this is such an important concept because if mental health practitioners are i guess unwell themselves it can actually impact on their work with their own clients that they see um and so actually being aware and addressing it is something um i think is really important and something that i would like to push um i guess in australia because this is a concept that hasn't necessarily been done yet yeah um and so i guess yeah this is this is yeah this is this is what i want to go into i guess working with eating disorders and being a clinical psychologist um who also owns the lived experience yeah wow that is an interesting and sort of i know it's in the works but how do you sort of see that maybe coming to fruition well i think it's it's hard and i think that you need a lot of buy-in from all different sides you obviously need buy-in from uh, the government um, policies and, and psychology, psychological practices, etc. But in the last year, I've actually been very, very lucky to be involved in a couple of different research projects. Um, so I did one with 360 Health and Community as a research assistant, um, sort of looking at the literature surrounding um, the concept of, of peer support. Uh, so peer support is where someone with a lived experience of mental health uses this lived experience to um, support someone else who might be going through some mental health challenges or difficulties um, to really provide that support and hope and inspiration um, that recovery is possible. So I did a 
research piece um, on peer support and I guess the concept of lived experience clinicians as well. Yeah. Um, and I guess in that sort of report or research piece I did, um, I think a lot of it hinges on making sure that we've got adequate guidelines because I think a lot of the time people are really afraid to to embrace this concept of, of sharing a lived experience, uh, particularly as a clinician, because they go, okay, well, your personal and professional boundaries are really blurred. Yeah. Um, but for example, we've got really, really great examples in the US, um, such as the Montenegro Clinic run by Carolyn Coston, who openly hires um, therapists and clinical psychologists with a lived experience of, of an eating disorder. And a lot of research that they've done has actually shown that contrary to people's um, thoughts or their beliefs, um, these clinicians actually, um, I guess, actually uh, contributed to, to better client outcomes. And there wasn't that high risk of, of relapse as a lot of people originally thought, yeah. uh, but they actually had very, very clear guidelines. Um, so I think guidelines is something that we need to implement. Um, and I also actually, did a research piece with the National Mental Health Commission um, because I'm a fellow with them at the moment. Um, and in that research piece, it was quite similar looking at um, lived experience in Australia and really trying to incorporate lived experience voice into service delivery. Um, and so I think I think the, the foundations are there in terms of we're more embracing of the concept of, of lived experience at a local or national sort of government level. Yeah. Um, but I think it's now trying to push that further more and trying to convert those guidelines into actual guidelines we use every day in in the clinic so i, I think i think we will get there eventually hopefully yeah. fingers crossed <laughs> but i think for now we've got some pushing to do some work to do well it'd be exciting to see what happens you know in the future i mean these fields are ever evolving and but it would be mm. an interesting concept to have it a bit more you know i guess if the as someone with a lived experience, you have a bit more empathy with that person and a different perspective, you know, coming from that own, your own experience. I mean, everyone's mental health journey is different, like you say, but just to have a bit of first-hand experience uh, with it. Yes, I, I completely agree with you. And I think the reason why I'm so passionate for, for pushing for this cause is because when I was very unwell, um, you know, I had one of the best treatment teams I could ever have or could ever ask for in the world. You know, I had yeah. these world-class clinicians at my, at my feet, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, dietitians, nutritionists, you name it, they were there. But I, I think a big barrier for me was going, okay, well, you don't understand me. You know, why should I listen to you? You're a mental health professional. Cool. You've got all these clinical skills and strategies that you'd like me to implement, but you don't actually understand what I'm going through. You don't understand what it's like to have an eating disorder. You don't understand the pain, the thoughts that go through my mind. Why the heck should I listen to you? Yeah. Um, and so that was a big barrier for me to, to actually listening to my treatment team. And it wasn't until I, um, until I attended an inspiration night one night where I actually listened to um, this incredible panel of, of amazing lived experience speakers share their lived experience um, of their recovery from an eating disorder that I went, okay, well, recovery is possible. And, you know, those people on stage, they are, you know, living, breathing evidence and proof that recovery from an eating disorder is possible. Uh, because at that point I've had, I've had my eating disorder for 
six, seven years and it seemed almost impossible to recover. Yeah. Um, it seemed this distant, faraway goal. Um, and so listening to those speakers, you know, listening to people who have gone through it, who've, you know, oh, I've been there, done that, was very, very inspirational to me, provided me with so much hope and really encouraged me to, I guess, persevere in, in recovery and to, to listen to my treatment team. So I'm thinking, okay, we've got the lived experience bit, which is amazing and great for inspiration, recovery and hope. And we've got clinical psychologists or clinicians on the other hand, who've got all these clinical skills and tools, but what if we just merge them together into one? And so I guess that's my rationale for, yeah. <laughs> for really pushing for this concept and why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah, that's great. And I guess with sort of what would you say is one common myth about your profession or the field that you want to debunk? Hmm. Um, I think I've got several myths, but I think two come to mind that stick out the most. Mm -hmm. um, the first one, as I mentioned, was, um, I guess, about mental health professionals and their own mental health. I think that a lot of people think that uh, mental health practitioners or professionals in general are these godlike people who are immune to all sorts of life adversities, to mental health challenges or difficulties. But in reality, you know, life just happens. You know, people um, may, may lose a loved one. They may go through a really difficult transition in life, a separation, etc. And I think we all have our own lived experiences in, in some way or another. And you know, the other, the other reason I say that is because if you think about the actual statistics from a statistical point of view, one in two people will have some form of uh, mental illness or, or mental health difficulty in their entire lifetime. Yeah. So are you trying to say to me that if you were to put all these mental health professionals into one room, that they would make up the 50% of people who don't have any sort of mental health challenge or issue? <laughs> because I think that that is just really unrealistic and ridiculous um and so i think that the math just doesn't check out um so i really like to debunk that myth that you know um mental health professionals themselves are immune to, to mental illness because it's just like saying to a cardiologist you can never have a heart attack that's just that's just really silly um so i think that's the first big myth i'd like to debunk um and the Second myth I'd like to debunk is specifically about eating disorders um, because I think that often people think that eating disorders are these illnesses or disorders that are a diet gone wrong or illnesses that affect only, um, you know, females who are teenage from a Western culture who come from um, middle upper class families. Um, and that's completely false. And the reason I say that is because eating disorders like any sort of other mental health um, disorder or illness is, it doesn't discriminate. It can affect anyone from all walks of life, um, regardless of age, gender, religion, ethnicity, pretty much everything and anything in between. I actually used to work at WA's only specialist outpatient clinic for eating disorders, the Swan mm -hmm. Centre. And when I worked there, we saw a range of different clients that came in, you know, clients as young as seven, eight, all the way to people as old as 70, 80. You know, we had students, lecturers, doctors, engineers, everywhere in between. So I think that that's a big myth that people think that it only affects females and that you have to be thin mm. to have an eating disorder um, because 
you know, you can be at a normal weight or slightly above average weight and have a life-threatening eating disorder. Um, and you can be slightly underweight and not have an eating disorder. And the reason for that is that at the core of what eating disorders actually are, is that eating disorders are really this this collection of really unhealthy mindsets. You know, they're thoughts that bombard you 24-7 that say to you things like, you're not good enough, you um, need to lose weight because if not, people won't like you, um, you know, do this, you're not perfect, et cetera, et cetera. So these are actually the unhealthy thoughts that drive the eating disorder. Yeah. And these thoughts are the things that drive the maladaptive behaviors such as restricting or, or dieting or, or exercising. So the weight loss, for example, is really just this byproduct of the underlying unhealthy thoughts. And that's what I think I'd really like to get across to people that it's the thoughts, not so much the weight loss or, yeah. or how people look. Um, that's the actual eating disorder. And often um, when people, for example, are in recovery from um, an eating disorder like anorexia, when they have gained weight, when they are weight restored and they seem to be at a normal or healthy weight, that's actually when the eating disorder is worse. And that's when you know, their eating disorder voices in their head actually start to arc up a lot more because they go, okay, well, I still have those thoughts, but I'm not where I was before in terms of being at a lower weight. Um, and so what happens in recovery is that you have this escalation of, of voices in your head um, because when you have an eating disorder, you have this eating disorder voice, right? And then when you, I guess, try to engage in recovery, you have this recovery voice that goes, yes, you can do this. But then when that recovery voice goes, your eating disorder voice goes up. And so you have this escalation where it makes it very, very overwhelming. Um, and I think that's what people need to know, that it's difficult to have an eating disorder because of that reason. So it's really more so the thoughts, um, not so much the weight loss. Okay, yeah. And um, what would you say are some of the best resources or most useful resources that have helped you along the way? Hmm. I think in terms of resources, um, first of all, I guess just family and, and friends, you know, they were incredible sources of, of support. My first experience with a psychologist was a not so positive experience and actually had made me quite reluctant to seek help throughout high school. Um, and a friend actually noticed how I was a bit more upset than usual, uh, wasn't myself and checked in with me and said, hey, you know, I, I can see you're really struggling. Would you like to go to someone? And so I went to my school nurse who referred me to my local Headspace Centre. Um, and my local Headspace Centre then referred me to um, the Centre for Clinical Interventions, which had a specialist eating sort of program at the time. Um, so these have been really, really useful. And I gauged really well in therapy um, there. And so I would say, you know, friends, family, um, services in the community, such as Headspace or, or the Centre for Clinical Interventions or any sorts of um, mental health uh, service, I guess, is, is really useful. And I guess specific to eating disorders, the Butterfly Foundation had been really helpful as well for me um, because they provided me with um, phone counselling in the interim while I was waiting um, for appointments in the wait list. Um, I was also really lucky. Um, I applied for the financial um, assistance recovery bursary from the Butterfly Foundation um, and lucky enough had, had gotten it. So they had actually paid for my hospital admissions, my, my appointments, which were absolutely incredible. Um, and they've got a whole bunch of resources 
on their website as well for, for parents, for, for carers in terms of um, how to help a loved one out with an eating disorder. Uh, yeah. What are the warning signs? So I think all these general resources um, are, quite, are quite good. Wow. Yeah, that's definitely. And we've sort of, if, how would you say it's best to educate? Obviously that one was specifically with eating disorders, but just general mental health, what are some of the best resources to educate yourself? Hmm. I think in terms of general mental health, as, as a starting point, I think places like um, Headspace are, are great because they have it in a very youth-friendly way, very easy to understand simplistic language for people who are reading up about mental health for the first time. I think the Black Dog Institute, um, Beyond Blue, also have really, really great resources that are very simple to read, um, but carers or family members can sort of pick up. Um, and I guess it's sort of, I think there's they've got quite a few pamphlets and brochures that um, educate um, others on what to look out for, how to approach someone with a, um, who might who might be struggling, how to how to check in with them, uh, what to say, or things might be helpful or, or unhelpful. Um, so I think general mental health, those resources are, I think, uh, are quite good. Yeah. Um, I know that just on the note for eating disorders, it's a bit trickier with eating disorders because um, you have to sort of approach it in a bit of a different way because with eating disorders, you wouldn't necessarily say to someone, I've noticed um, you've lost weight because that sometimes can be triggering for them. Yeah. Um, so on the Butterfly Foundation, specific to eating disorders, they have some really helpful uh, resources on there. Okay, that's definitely good to know and to check out if need be. And what advice would you uh, give to undergrads or high school students um, looking to enter psychology? <laughs> this is again a very tricky one. I'm very, I'm in two minds with this. Um, I guess if you're really looking for, um, to go into a career of, of psychology or, or clinical psychology, first of all, know that psychology is very broad. Um, there's clinical psychology, forensic psychology, health psychology, counselling psychology, um, and I guess throughout your undergrad, you'll hopefully get a bit of a taste of what each type of field of psychology is like and what you'd like to specialise in. I'm doing clinical psychology right now. Um, I could lie and sugarcoat it for you um, about entrance into a postgraduate clinical psychology program, um, but I won't. I will be honest and say that it's really tricky and it's really tough and challenging to get into um, any postgraduate clinical psychology program in Australia um, because most universities actually only take in between six to 10 or 12 wow. students per year for intake. Um, so it's highly competitive. And so I guess throughout your undergrad, you, I guess, would like be good if, you know, you could do um, different things that you could upskill yourself in, such as research in the area or, um, I guess, clinical type experience, for example, with Lifeline or Samaritans or um, having some sort of experience in terms of supporting someone else mm. that would be, I guess, useful to have. Yeah, yeah it, it is very, very challenging and tricky. Um, and, you know, you, yeah, it, it's a very competitive course. Um, yeah. And I would say that you don't, I guess it's tricky because you don't always know whether or not you'll like it once you go into it. And I guess in my case, I had known that I want to pursue this as a career. Yeah. Um, but even the course itself, doing the master's in clinical psychology is very challenging. Yeah. And I guess, you know, you want to be really, really passionate about 
about supporting others and helping others and have an interest, I guess, in what motivates, you know, human behavior um, and how people think and how we act and, and how we feel. Um, and I guess, you, yeah, you do really have to be, I guess, have, have an interest in this as, as a starting point. But, you know, you've got other different areas such as organisational psychology, which might not necessarily be so much related to mental health. It's more, I guess, to do with how workplaces function and how you can improve um, productivity in, in organisations. So psychology is very, very broad. Um, I would say have, yeah, have an idea of what sort of interest area um, you're looking to go into. Um, and I guess start early in terms of... Um, getting your research or, or volunteer experiences up because it is a competitive course and yeah. it's it's I guess you're sort of in for the long haul so you really have to love it great well thanks for the heads up for anyone who's looking to, <laughs> <laughs> to uh, venture out into psychology and um so I guess what do you think your unique skill is that has helped you sort of along the way I think my unique skill, which I've had to learn over the last couple of years, is to really dare to just put myself, put yourself, put myself out there, really, um, and not caring about what other people think about me. Um, and when I say that, I mean, you know, not caring about how others might might judge me or perceive me, and just doing what I what I do, you know, be confident in my abilities. And I think that's gonna be um, a really long way. For example, just things like doing the TEDx talk, which was actually a very, very big and huge step for me to step out of my comfort zone. Um, that was huge because in high school, I remember literally stuttering whenever I would public speak. Yeah. And now that's, I, I do public speaking a lot. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, just, just really pushing, daring to, push myself out of my, my comfort zone has gotten me um, a very, very long way because it's only through putting myself out there that I've got to meet these incredible other people um, who've then shared with me their experiences and, and what life has like be for, for them in their different roles, which has then led to um, other amazing opportunities and, and platforms to, to share my lived experience um, and working in areas to, to support others who um, are experiencing mental health difficulties. Um, so I think that, yeah, my biggest, I guess, unique ability would be pushing myself out of my comfort zone, um, I guess, daring to be different if you'd like, um, and really trying to pursue something that I wouldn't say is impossible, um, but I know people in the past have, you know, said to, to me things such as, you know, I don't think this is possible to do in terms of um, fusing being a clinician, a professional, and having a lived experience together. And I'm going, well, people in the US have done that. Why we haven't we done that in, in Australia? Um, so I guess just having having a goal and, and daring to, to work towards it, I think would be, I guess, um, a strength or a uni unique aspect of myself. Yeah, that's definitely, definitely a good strength. And, and what are you curious about at the moment? Curious about? Um, I think I feel like I keep coming back to this topic, but I think I'm really, really curious about how to navigate having a lived experience and, and being a clinician. Um, again, I think this is something that is just the elephant in the room mm -hmm. and that it's something that people don't talk about. I know, you know, other mental health professionals and, and GPs and people in training in professional clinical training who are struggling, who are, you know, perhaps they've got, they're, they're depressed or they're, they're anxious or going through just a hard time and they don't 
dare to speak up because they're afraid of um, the potential consequences such as not being able to get registration as a professional or getting their registration barred or, or removed or revoked. Um, and these are real fears. So I really like to learn how to navigate both things and be able to wear both my hats of so being a lived experience advocate, um, speaker, and as well as being a professional as a psychologist. Yeah, I, I, I don't know how, as you mentioned, you know, it's going to be really tricky to try to navigate um, these dual identities, but I think it's something that I would really like to push for um, in the future. Well, it be, definitely will be interesting to see how you get on uh, going forward <laughs> and sort of where can people keep, keep track with you and, you know, get in touch with you if they want, uh, follow you? I don't have Twitter, <laughs> um, but I guess every every now and then, I, I guess to keep up to date, if you'd like, I do regularly hop in, regularly or occasionally um, hop onto LinkedIn. Um, sometimes I post things on there of what I'm doing or what I get up to. And yeah, I guess in terms of the mental health sphere, um, in terms of research, in terms of clinical practice, or just sharing interesting posts or articles I come along. Um, so I guess... Um, yeah, I guess LinkedIn, you can email me. Where else? I'm just trying to think. Facebook. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think these would be the main, main platforms. Yeah. Great. Great. And sort of the last thing before we go, um, what would be the one thing, one bit of advice or something that you'd like people listening to sort of take away? Hmm. <laughs> I guess don't be afraid to, to speak up if you know if you've, you've had a lived experience of, of mental health I think it by not speaking up you know we are perpetuating the silence that that goes on um, amongst the general population and uh, and if you're a mental health professional amongst um, mental health professionals um, so I guess speaking up would really help reduce stigma and would encourage people to to seek help more um, and improve access to services I guess that would be my my main takeaway and I guess to yeah check in if you um, if you're noticing someone is, is having a hard time checking with them, ask them, are you okay? You know, what can I do to help? You know, um, can we have a coffee catch up or catch up for brunch? Yeah, I think those, those are my main takeaways in terms of, of mental health and just daring to speak up and, you know, move out of your comfort zone. I yeah. think that's where great things happen. Great. Well, thanks so much for your time, Phoebe. It's been great to catch up with you and see where you've how far you've come since the TEDxUWA talk. Um, so thank you very much. Hi, thanks so much for your time, Talia. There may be less coffee catch-ups, hugs or high-fives. But we are still part of the global UWA community. And have a role to play. The UWA alumni community is committed to helping all, all of our students, students staff, staff and graduates through the COVID-19 crisis. You can help by making a donation, send, send a message, message of support, support, become a mentor, ambassador, or simply check in with a fellow graduate. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part. Let's all do our part and, and help, help the global, global UWA, UWA community. community.